establishing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. I am James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're talking tiny T-Rex arms, lanternfly lessons, and bendy batteries. In the second half, we'll have Jason's conversation with our favorite Psycom surfer, Gabe Verduzco, that will cover his efforts to increase awareness on invasives and some great advice as gardening season begins. But first, the news. A few weeks ago, we talked about the possibility of increasing the number of species in the genus Tyrannosaurus. But what wouldn't change is the adorably tiny arms on any member of that group. In an article in the journal Acta Paleontologica Planica, Kevin Padian attempted to answer the question posed to him by legions of students, which is, what's with the tiny arms? In this article, he kind of paints a picture that is not unlike a Jurassic Thanksgiving table and the dangers posed by accidental appendage injuries. So what do we think about this tiny arm hypothesis to keep it out of the not-so-tiny jaws of a T-Rex? So I like the visual because I always thought T-Rex was like a single hunter, right? Um, And this says that perhaps T-Rex hunted in packs like wolves and they all kind of gathered around one carcass. And so they have these massive heads that are just like eating the same carcass and they're using these small arms to just bat the heads away as a warning. And just the visual of that was fascinating because I've been, been next to the the Natural History Museum, those big skeletons, and you're like, wow, just a T-Rex frenzy would be amazing, amazingly terrifying. I completely agree. Um, I'd want to get my arms out of the way, too. And I've been around hungry teenagers, right? I mean, my boys eat me out of house and home, and if they had T-Rex-sized jaws, I'd be really scared for my limbs, for sure. Uh, what I thought was interesting There were two parts of this that I thought were particularly interesting. First of all, just the relative size of T-Rex arms compared to their bodies is maybe something not everyone really understands. So if you had, to put it in sort of perspective, if you you looked at a 45-foot long T-Rex, it would have a head that's about five feet long. So a jaw that's about five feet long. Their arms are like three and a quarter feet long. So much shorter than their own jaws, which is crazy when you consider how much longer our arms are relative to our jaws. So that was the first thing that stuck out to me. But the second thing was was this idea that this is really an issue of no hypothesis explains this well, so this one might be the most plausible. That's often what happens in a discipline like paleontology where, where hypotheses can be testable, but only based on the fossil record. And if you don't have all, tr- all the transitional taxa, it's tough to actually test a hypothesis definitively. So instead, there are multiple competing hypotheses that oftentimes part of one is refuted and part of another is refuted. And so we have, we have all these sorts of sets of hypotheses that allow us to paint a picture of what the past might look like. And what is interesting is that the ancestors to T-Rex um, had longer arms, all of the taxa, all of the species that are closely related and, and preceded T-Rex had long arms. And so the question is, why would T-Rex arms get shorter? And it's an adaptation argument that there must be a reason that the arms would shorten in length. 
Um, and that might have been because of feeding frenzies, right? And trying to keep limbs out of the way of your cronies' jaws. You know, you don't want to accidentally get amputated. None of the previous hypotheses to explain why T-Rex had short arms could explain why T-Rex arms got shorter. All they could do at best is explain why they stayed small. So in other words, if there was an ancestor that had shorter arms, T-Rex having shorter arms makes sense. But there was no hypothesis put forth that would suggest why T-Rex would evolve shorter arms, except now we have this uh, pack hunting hypothesis uh, that it might explain that um, why the arms got shorter because you've got all of these animals feeding together in a feeding frenzy like a pack of wolves or a pack of velociraptors if we want to oh you know think back to even the famous scenes in Jurassic Park which you know are pretty well documented I think in the paleontological literature there's a good reason to expect that velociraptor was a pack hunter um, it doesn't seem out of the ordinary that maybe a larger species like T-Rex would be as well yeah it makes the jeep scene seem a lot more futile if you have t-rex standing at the front of the group where you're just kind of being funneled into into uh that area that ambush so nightmares this is one of those things that's really cool until you think about it and they're like oh my god that's a pack (laughs) right yeah i mean one t-rex scary yeah two t-rexes scarier a pack of t-rexes like no i'm gonna need a change of shorts i think i'm still gonna have nightmares tonight Maybe. Sure. I mean. It'll be fun. (laughs) Maybe we can uh, increase the variety of things in your nightmares by talking about a swarm of tiny bugs. Oh, great. Bring it. (laughs) (laughs) So later in this episode, you're going to hear about some invasive species that pose a significant threat to trees in the United States. Our next story talks about the need for a little bit of nuance when discussing non-native species. Back in 2017, the Penn State Extension Service, Go Nittany Lions, issued a kill-on-site order for all spotted lanternflies in southeastern Pennsylvania, citing an imminent threat to trees and plant life in the region. And the good people of Pennsylvania answered the call, and went to combat with this new enemy using a variety of techniques from pesticides, social media-driven squishathons, and in some cases, random aerosolized products like cooking spray and hairspray. You Turns missed out, the killing the land- pub, fro- cr- pub crawls. Oh, we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. This is just the intro. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Turns out... Hey, and- State College, they love pub crawl of any kind. So it turns out the lanternfly may not be nearly as concerning as once thought, and after the dust settled, it tur- maybe the people caused more damage than the lanternflies themselves. So what do we think of this cautionary tale where labeling a species as a dangerous invasive leads to a lot of damage to plant life by the people around them? I feel sad for the invasive species. They're just trying to make a new home. I think this also kind of points to we need more language around this, right? Yeah, Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, some ecologists have even been pushing this, right? This narrative that not all non-native species, they're not always bad, Um, but it tends to be framed that way. So we really need the knowledge and we need to communicate honestly what's actually happening. Because there are species that are pretty dangerous. And we'll talk about like the shot hole borer and the emerald ash borer and those kind of things that are 
they will like burn through a population because they don't have any uh, predators. But uh, it doesn't seem like that's the case with the spotted lanternfly, which has done minimal damage to most things and really only moderate amounts of damage to things like vineyards, which I don't know. Last time I checked, we shouldn't be able to grow grapes in Pennsylvania anyway, but that's more of a climate change thing. I want to talk for a minute about the language issue again, because I think we were onto something there. And that is, we don't have good language to talk about species that are not native, but don't pose a threat. And that's because we call them invasive species. And the USDA defines an invasive species as a non-native living thing likely to pose a threat to the environment, the economy, or human health. Likely to pose a threat. This is not something that allows for a species such as the lanternfly. Sorry, I almost lost the name of it for a moment. The lanternfly, because it seems like it's not damaging trees uh, to the extent that was worried about before. And um, maybe it's not such an issue. I mean, it, it certainly is taking over um, niches that it, that it didn't occupy previously, but that's because it wasn't here. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. And a, another good example of that is the Joro spider that is found along the eastern seaboard too. It's this you know, three-inch wide, I guess, spider from Japan that is horrifying to look at because it's brightly colored. It actually looks like the Maryland state flag almost. It's got yellow and black sort of cresty looking things all over it with some red splotches here and there and some blue. And uh, and it's just this vibrant looking insect. Actually, it's not an insect. I shouldn't say that. Arachnid. And it looks horrifying, but it poses no threat to people at all. And in fact, what it probably does is keeps the rest of the critters in your yard down um, so that you don't have um, infestations of bugs into your living spaces. So, but it's still an invasive species. And by definition, it could pose a threat or it's likely to pose a threat. And I think that's the issue here. We need better language. Well, and the issue too is if you have these kill on site orders for these bugs too, people were just going all out and actually causing more damage than the bugs, the spotter and lan lantern flies themselves. So there's been instances of people saw these spotted lantern flies on a tree. And so they were using herbicide instead of insecticide to kill the bugs. And it just led to killing perfectly healthy trees in that case. Mm -hmm. That can't be yeah. occupied by lantern flat by spotted lantern flies. Oh. So there's that, right? I mean, you take away their habitat. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's right. If we burn all the trees down, then we don't have to worry about invasive tree eating insects anymore. Right. That's right. I thought they said someone took like hairspray and was lighting it on fire. Yeah, I read that too. Flies. And kerosene too. Oh. Just willy-nilly spraying kerosene. There was a viral video. I think it's a meme now about somebody trying to use hairspray and a lighter to kill a spider in their kitchen. Oh, no. You know, have you ever seen this? No. Did they end up catching their kitchen on fire? Yes. <gasps> yeah, I think I've seen that. Right. Yeah. I mean, as if it wasn't obvious what was going to happen. You know, this is uh, this is one of those stories that could only come out of Pennsylvania. Um and I can say that as a native Pennsylvania. Well, I'll be careful. You know who that. has, I think uh, a Florida man has a beef with that. Yeah. Well, it's an eternal struggle that will go on well after the heat death of the universe. It'll be <laughs> oh. a rural Pennsylvanian and a panhandle Floridian, and they will continue fighting on in the cosmos until they become a, their own constellation. Way to go, Penn State. Got a lot of dead trees because of your kill on site order. I thought that was a bit of a stretch for a for a uh, 
an extension service to do, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. When you advertise a place as Happy Valley, what do you think is going to happen? The non-invasive Murder. species are coming in because it seems like a good place to be. Well, technically it was in southeastern PA, so it was more towards Philly where there's lots of people with lots of things to spray into things. And I love you so much, Pennsylvania listeners. You could even <laughs> report where your murders were and to a website. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was not run by the extension service, though, right? That was by a by an enterprising Pennsylvanian. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, I was in Philly last week, and uh, it was nice to be back on the East Coast for a little while because uh, I've been living in Indiana so long that it it was hard for me to immediately recognize that somebody was shooting heroin right there on the street corner as I was walking by. It took me a minute to like for that to register because it had been a while since I'd seen that. You know what I'm thinking right now? I that that was a wonderful story about Urban Decay, uh, Jason. Thank you for sharing. But I'm also remembering <laughs> that the spotted lanternfly kill order, I think it coincides pretty closely with the NHL team, the Philadelphia Flyers, adopting their new mascot Gritty. So I don't know if there's correlation, but I don't know. Maybe the spotted lantern flies brought a gritty. Do we need to squish gritty? And is that what you're saying? Squish no. gritty. Did gritty is a force of good. That's what I Everyone thought. loves and gritty. Justice. He's I believe I believe you'd call him chaotic good if you were rolling out his stat sheet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so speaking of bendy batteries. <laughs> <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> As we strive to make tech that is smaller wearable and more integrated into our lives there's been a bit of a bottleneck limiting the measure of miniaturization that can occur specifically we need small and flexible batteries so that we can power the dang things and after years of research develop and development that began in graduate school dr christine ho and her team at imprint energy may have found an answer in its incredibly small and flexible Zincor power system that may unlock new lows in the size of our tech. And this is just this is just a, a call to action to anyone. Uh, we'd love to talk to these people on our podcast. So we're going to talk about this story now, but if they want to come on and set us straight, maybe we've got to do something horribly inaccurate so they're forced to come on and and uh, uh, roast us on our own podcast. So this is really interesting to me. And it's also not Bugs or T-Rex arms, so uh, Steffi won't be squirming as we're talking about them. I don't know. Now I have T-Rexes with these lantern flies. Now they're battery operated in my dreams. So uh, They could be because we could get up to one millimeter thick batteries right? that you could probably put on a lantern fly. Yeah. I think uh, Steffi would be more horrified not by the T-Rex and the you know, spotted lantern flies, but by the way that we speak about energy, that would probably be more horrifying to her than, <laughs> the, than what we spoke about, right? That is. <laughs> I think it's great because this gives us alternatives to lithium ion batteries that's really dominating the tech uh, field right now. They rely on liquid electrolytes and those can be flammable when over when they're overheated or when there's damage to them, I mean, I was just flying the other week and we all had to remove our lithium ion batteries for, to make sure uh, when we were boarding. Um, so having this as another option 
is amazing. Plus, I mentioned lithium-ion batteries. They have to be well-shielded, too, and that adds to size and the constraints and the conditions that you can use because there's only a certain temperature range. So if we can find materials that can make these smaller, that don't have all these extra requirements and all these heat requirements as as these temperature requirements, that could be game-changing for a a lot of tech out there. Especially wearable tech. Yes. Uh, Because, you know, there's like the mock-ups of the the wearable tech shirts and... It seems cool and integrated until you realize there's like the little battery pack on your side that there is just there's not a good way to hide it right now. Uh, maybe that's why none of these have gotten past the R&D stage because there's just like this little hip pack of of battery. Um, and, you know, there's also not a flammable hazard with everybody wearing their wearable tech as they move about the world. I think this is really cool. And I never really thought about why... There has to be this like big hunkin' battery pack until I was like, oh yeah, when things get smaller, they get more likely to break and catch on fire. So this makes sense to me now. Makes a lot of sense um, for all the reasons that you've both spoken about already, but also because it's just zinc is so common compared to lithium, mm-hmm. right? And and it's yeah. pre- and it's you know present here in this country, which means we don't have to import a lot of it too, which could potentially reduce the cost of of using batteries as well. I guess the issue, though, is that they're not as rechargeable as lithium-ion batteries are, at least at this point, because they develop, um, I guess, kind of like stalactites along the um, electrodes, right? And so that, yep. that, you know, they have zinc deposits that sort of hang off of these electrodes that then prevent efficient conduction of energy. And so the charging uh, cycle doesn't work quite as well and so with successive recharges it, it eventually loses its, its ability in a way that lithium-ion batteries don't so if they can get over that hurdle that will be a huge step forward well they've already had some success i mean this this article talks about how researchers worked to modify that electrolyte to reduce that damage so this allows for faster recharging So one study actually reported that high-performance zinc air cells was stable for over 30,000 charging cycles. So if they can extrapolate this to more batteries, more situations, we're looking pretty good. Think about the amount of power that's getting put out by something this small, too. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. not insignificant, too, when we're talking about the future of just tech in general, because we're making these devices that are smaller, but they're not necessarily consuming that much less powerful power when you think about what an iPhone does as opposed to like the old brick Zach Morris phone. Um. (laughs) (laughs) See, and I was going to go Miami Vice. That totally puts us in different uh, eras here, James. Well, it's really exciting to see where the miniaturization of tech is going to go. And like I said before, standing invite to the people at Imprint Energy. Let me know at cyanite.com. You can find our email. You can find us on all the socials. Please reach out to us. Come on our podcast. We're really nice. We are not nearly as ridiculous as this episode would make it seem, or at least what we're cutting out. Speak Um, for yourself, James. (laughs) So with that... We will go to a quick commercial break from a podcast that I think you will enjoy, and we will come back with Jason's conversation with Gabe Verduzco. Nature, we're part of it. Animals, 
we're one of them. What can we learn from other species? How can our lives be better by reconnecting with nature? And why does it matter at all? That's what Wild Connection, the podcast, is all about. Every week, we bring you authors, filmmakers, scientists, and conservationists whose work is revealing why being connected to nature and wildlife matters. You can find us where you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. We're hosted by Podbean, so you can find us there too. And you can keep up with us on Twitter at WildConnectPod. We would like to welcome to the podcast Gabe Verdusco, who is a research associate at the University of California Cooperative Extension's Agriculture and Natural Resources Division. Gabe, welcome to Science Night. Yeah, thank you. Excited to be here. We are very excited to have you as a guest. A few episodes back, we actually covered some of your work on TikTok and Instagram, uh, where you are out in the Southern California forests looking for invasive species that are destroying our trees. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah, so as a research associate for the University of California, we're, we survey for an invasive shot hole beetle, and this is a, a ambrosia beetle. It's a boring beetle. It goes after native species and non-native species, almost 60 trees that, that are a host for this beetle. And so basically, uh, it'll bore inside the tree, they can reproduce with each other, so their populations just can explode really quickly. And it makes it a um, little more challenging for um, any predators because the beetle's also inside the tree. And there's no predators for that. The shot hole borer doesn't have a specific preferred tree alone, right? There, it, can, it can invasively destroy several types of trees. Is that correct? Yeah, so specifically, it really, it's pretty sad, but it likes our native species. And so it'll, it'll just wreak havoc on um, native sycamores. And then it likes coast live oaks, willows, all native species to this area. And uh, another one it really, really likes, is, it's called the box elder. And so that's an, another tree that it really likes. We've noticed too, when uh, populations get heavy enough in certain areas, uh, it will just start going after everything. So if, you, if you're not managing it, um, you'll see it really just start hitting all the trees that are in the area. So what can you tell us about where shot hole borers come from? Like they're invasive to Southern California. Where, where do they, are they found naturally? So it originated from the South Pacific. We're thinking like the Philippines or somewhere in that, that region. And basically what we think it happened is it came in from pallet material. They have the wood that's been used to create pallets. And then it, since it's a boring beetle, it lived inside that uh, material that they used to create pallets with. And so we've also found in our uh, lab that we put pieces of infested wood inside of uh, cages. We've seen these beetles emerge three months later on like a piece of wood that we cut, physically cut, brought back to lab. Beetles emerge up to three months later. So you can, you can see it just, it could have bored inside a tree, they cut down made a pallet and who knows how far that well made it to right. us <laughs> yeah that's that sounds dangerous really i mean you know there's no way to to control for that well so in their natural environments um do they have a preferred species they like to bore into or are they sort of opportunists and they'll they'll take advantage of everything that's out there 
Yeah, I'm not too sure what tree species they're being hit in their uh, their native lands. I do know that they have predators there, so that keeps the populations in control. It's, it's not getting out of hand there. So there is research being done to find a uh, predatorial in- insect that'll come in and um, you know eat it or destroy it. But that takes a long time. You can't just bring something over. It could also then start eating other, th- you know, who knows? Right. Yeah. When you start to play with fire, right, you might get burned. And so there's a classic example of that in Australia where they brought in a whole bunch of rabbits to try to take care of some other, and I, forgive me, I'm not remembering the story very well, but uh, they brought in a bunch of rabbits to try to take care of some other invasive species. And now they are just overrun with rabbits because there were no natural predators for those rabbits. And it was pretty crazy. Yeah, I heard a similar scenario in um, Hawaii, and they brought in, I think it was a mongoose to control either maybe snakes or rats or something like that. And now the mongoose is is just uh, overpopulated the area. Um, I did want to ask you a little bit about the boring beetles that I have in my backyard. So I know that we have emerald ash borers here, and they really seem, from what I understand, to really stick to ash trees. They don't really venture away from ash trees. And I'm wondering from a species survival perspective, this is something that has bothered me. They're invasive and they're just ravaging the ashes around me. I mean, we, thankfully they're not in my backyard anymore, but they were, there's evidence of it. But once they've torn through all the ashes, where are they going to go? How does that species think about, you know, sustaining itself when its single source of habitat and perhaps sustenance is gone? It doesn't seem like a very smart evolutionary strategy for the survival of that species. And I'm wondering if you have any sort of insight into generally sort of how boring beetles have evolved and sort of what they're doing. Yeah, the emerald ash borer is going for just the ash tree. So, you know, it's interesting. Like you make a great point because when the trees are gone, what where is it going to go after? Does it attack other trees? For the shawl beetle, you can see that it, you know, it has up to 60, almost 60 different host trees. So it could potentially keep carrying itself on. But uh, once, once its main food source is gone, it's like the beetle just disappear. That's, that's a great question. um, The emerald ash borer is in my area of expertise, but uh, it would be really interesting to try to figure out what, like, people that are studying it, like what happens when their food source is gone? No, it's a good point. So let's bring it back to the shot hole borers because that is in your area of expertise. And it's not the it's not the boring that actually kills the trees, right? It's a fungus that is introduced. And so tell us how that works. The ambrosia beetle uh, farms this fungus in its mouth. It has these special cavities. So it bores in and it um, it's sort of the symbi- symbiotic relationship with the, the tree and the beetle, when it bores in, farming this fungus, and um, the fungus is lives on the tree, the xylem and the phloem, and so it's able to feed itself that way and reproduce, and it's just farming inside there. And the fungus itself, you can't really translocate water and nutrients up and down the tree, and this then the tree just slowly dies. And um, if you can imagine thousands of beetles inside of a tree trunk, you know it's it's going to suffocate and kill the tree. So so the boring and the fungus, and eventually your tree's gone, and then it will fly off into other trees. So you used a couple of anatomical terms that I'm not sure our listeners probably know. I don't remember them very well either, but you mentioned a xylem and a phloem, which are two parts of a plant. As a vertebrate biologist here, I'm very familiar with vertebrate biology, but invertebrate biology and plant biology, I'm not very strong in. So can you tell us what the xylem and the phloem are again? 
yeah, so on the outer outer layer of the tree is where water and nutrients are moved up the tree and down the tree and through the leaves and that whole uh, photosynthetic process is happening. So uh, the xylem and phloem allow water transportation, sugars, nutrients, all to help that process of moving up the tree. In the, in the short version, <laughs> there's a, probably a more in-depth chemistry going on there, but just in short. And I uh, was saying that I worked with the shot hole, but then I also wanted to talk about, there's another beetle I work with and that's called the gold spotted oak borer. And um, then we're also in Southern California working with an Asian citrus psyllid. That's mostly with citrus, but back to the gold spotted oak borer, that's an insect that actually came from Arizona. And that's another boring beetle that we work with. So that one specifically likes coast live oaks. And um, again, we'll bore in, basically we'll girdle the tree that you lose that uh, translocation of water and nutrients. And then you're, you have mature oaks that are probably been growing for a couple hundred years, a hundred years that they can kill in a year or two, which is pretty sad. <laughs> yeah. That does sound pretty sad. These things, yeah. uh, you know, take a, a serious toll on their hosts. Yeah. And again, with the, uh, the shot hole beetle, it's another example of once the infestation is, it gets high enough and it will eventually suffocate the tree and it'll destroy trees. I've seen in six months with huge, beautiful trees that are, you know, the value probably $10,000 value trees is and beyond the value of money is just, there's, you know, insects and birds and wildlife and they provide shade and keep our spaces beautiful. And so to lose these trees is, it's, it's pretty saddening, but. Let's talk a little bit then about um, how you're using social media to bring awareness to the problem here, because there aren't a lot of people who are speaking directly to, you know, how to deal with invasive species using social media. Um, how is this, how did you decide to do this? And, and, you know, what is, what's been the outcome so far? Yeah. So I, obviously we have our cell phones and, um, you know, there's so many ways to post pictures and, and, and Inst you now you have Instagram and it, it's for me, it actually started way back with uh, Twitter. So I was a long time ago on Twitter. I was kind of like the first thing where you just follow, you know, famous people or chat with people. And so I was always just on Twitter. And then I, one day I just was like, I realized that you could um, get into a keyword search. And so you could type in a keyword like a flower or um, so my keyword search, I would, I would look for people that were looking for plant help. So I basically would type in how do I identify this plant or what is the symptom happening with my leaves? Or so I would use keyword searches to um, seek out people and help them. And it, I just started doing that for fun. I was just like, Oh, be, like, I think I would, I would see in, in Twitter feeds, people um, asking for just um, general like plant identification. So that's how I started on Twitter. Anyone on Twitter, I was helping. So I just started doing that for fun. And then it took off and I was helping a lot of people and it, just doing it for funsies. And, and then I uh, got picked up onto the San Francisco Chronicle. So somebody um, I was helping was an editor that used to work there. And she's like, Hey, this is, this is awesome what you're doing. Let's, let's run with this. And I was just like, all right, cool. Then from then on, Instagram got big. And so I just started posting plant pictures. And then I really got into nat native species, native plants, and just kind of doing my similar thing, but putting on uh, what I'm doing, what I love, what I enjoy. Then TikTok got really big. And so I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm going to start maybe make some videos of what I do at work or just not a lot of people are really doing this. So I'm like, maybe I should, I should uh, just post some stuff again for fun. And then uh, 
saw that LA Times was having a plant people section. And I was like, oh, this is cool again. And again, there was nothing out there about uh, invasive species or anything of that sort. So I reached out to them and it took me two years, tried to uh, email them two years ago. And then and finally it got caught steam on in December when um, I had that reporter reach out to me, we connected and, and then it just from then just took off. That's really cool. So you, you know, you're just doing your regular job, right? And also enjoying your social media. And now you've been able to sort of merge the two. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute then. How did you get into this field of work? Right. What was your background? You know, what is your passion for plants? How I got into it is just as a kid, I was always outside playing outside with the, I loved just bugs, animals, critters, any little thing outside I was totally tuned into. And, and then I started vegetable gardening at a young age. And that, so that really gained, got, grew my interest. My very first job at, I uh, was 15 and a half. And that was, I got a job hired doing, uh, at an agricultural research center. And so that was through the USDA. And, and then again, it just, these doors open and my interest was just like, wow, this is so intriguing. I love this. Uh, um, and working with fruits and then plants and vegetables, it just was like, all right, I love this. I enjoy this. I want to keep going with it. So I studied plant sciences at um, my university. And like I said, I just started doing internships. I was getting involved and um, doors open and I just kept going with it. And just things I enjoy doing and love doing. And it's, you know, it's led to, for me to do so much, you know? Yeah. So speaking of things that you love to do, um, you love to be outside, obviously, and you get to do that for your, for your job, but most of your uh, work related things are terrestrially bound. It seems to me based on stories in the LA times, but also on your Instagram feed that you like being in the ocean quite a bit too. Have you ever, have you ever studied plant life in the ocean? You know, I had that thought the other day. I'm just, cause I was surfing and I'm like, Oh, this seaweed there's a lot of seaweed here. And I'm like, I gotta, gotta look into this generally, like educate myself on seaweed. And is this a native species or what, like what type of seaweeds are growing in our ocean? And uh, so I started thinking about that, but I haven't really dug any further on that. So land is for work. Sea is for fun, basically. Yeah. Excellent. So how did you get started in surfing? Did you grow up in Southern California? No, I grew up far away from the ocean in central California where, um, I only got to get to the beach in the summer times. And so I just, the ocean for me was like a space where I was like growing up. I'm like, okay, I always know I want to surf. I grew up swimming. So that was a really helpful background to have that swimming experience. And I knew I loved the water. I loved the ocean. And then one year I just decided to move to Hawaii. I'm just like, I'm going to Hawaii. This was uh, in 2017. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, just going to move to Hawaii. I don't know. I'd never been, never visited, didn't know anyone. And I'm just like, I'm going to, why do people always go there? Why do people travel there? What, like, what's the deal? And I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to find out. And so I just made the jump and I'm like, I'm going to learn to surf. And it was an experience beyond my imagination and really propelled me and helped me just become a more well-rounded individual and push myself and get outside of my box, you know? And so, um, so I just got a wave storm. It's the board you can go get at Costco and just jumped in the ocean and, I figured it out by myself. So I was super proud of myself. And now here I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to go every single day and I've been at it for five years now and I want to hang 10, <laughs> get, uh-huh. get, put it, get your toes on the, on the edge of the board. I understand. I love how you, uh, you said you grew up far away from the ocean and I'm thinking, oh yeah, me too. I live in Indiana. Nope. That's not what you meant. 
You meant you lived in central part of California, right? So far is is all relative. Yeah, I guess for California standards, it's really far. <laughs> <laughs> understood, understood. So what kind of message do you have for folks who are, you know, maybe weekend warriors out in their gardens? What should they be looking for to make sure that they're not being overtaken by by pests that will, you know, destroy whatever it is that they're doing in the backyard, whether it is growing their own garden, whether it's planting, preferably native species in their backyard? Um, what, what should they be on the lookout for? I get a lot of plant questions from friends, family, a lot of people. And I just say, hey, look, keep it simple. You know, if you're, if you're a beginner and you, if you're starting it for your first time, keep it simple. Uh, whether if it's a vegetable garden, choose a couple things that, you know, tomatoes are super easy. So a couple tomatoes and uh, maybe, you know, a pepper or cucumbers, keep it very simple. Don't all overwhelm yourself because, you know, everybody's busy, has, has things going on. So keep it simple. Don't overdo it. Cause um, if you do try to like, I'm going to grow eight, 10 rows of corn and I'm going to grow all this. And at uh, you'll lose the, you forget a couple of days of water and you get caught up with other things, you'll, you'll lose your crop. So keep it, I always tell people, just keep it simple. And then if you wanted to planting the natives, maybe start with going to your local nursery and grab some um, seed, native seeds. A lot of these uh, local nurseries sometimes have, um, for example, here, you know, you can go and get California golden poppy seeds and, you know, just throw them out on a rainy day or uh, any other native seeds and super simple, just go and buy some native seed at your local, local place. And, um, just, I like to say, yeah, keep it easy. Don't, don't overwhelm yourself because then, um, you learn by doing with, with vegetable gardening and, and just gen in general gardening, you, you, um, can really just learn as you go, but don't overwhelm yourself. And that's the best way to, um, enjoy it. Yeah. It's funny you should say that because I, I have a memory uh, from my childhood where we never had a vegetable garden at my house. Just never did for whatever reason, because we all eat vegetables. It's not like we don't eat vegetables, but never had one. But my dad, who grew up in Southern California, decided that he was going to go back to what he did in high school, which was grow orchids. So he went from having no vegetable garden at all to having like a controlled growing area in our basement for orchids, right? And, you know, that included like, you know, plastic sheeting to simulate a rainforest. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, keep it simple. Sounds like the way we should have been going about things, right? Not more complicated. So along those lines, you know, you've been doing this for a while. Um, you clearly have a green thumb. Is there a particular, uh, you know, plant that is challenging to grow that you love to try to, to nurture? Um, I've always found it challenging is these, um, I've always loved the Venus flytraps, the ones that, so these carnivorous plants that'll eat uh, insects, flies, um, any, any bugs. And, and so I've always found the carnivorous plants to be a little bit challenging. And so I remember buying them as a, a, when I was in my younger age and I uh, like teens and, and I could never keep them alive. And I just like get frustrated. So I always see them at the store, like Home Depot, or and I'm just like, ah, I'm gonna wait again because I know I'm gonna, I know those are tough to just keep alive. But um I maybe I'll have a go at them someday when I have a, a controlled environment. <laughs> there you go. Right. Yeah. Just because it's indoors and controlled doesn't mean it's easy though, right? Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners? Um, where to find you, what they should be looking out for in their own backyards, anything. Yeah, I want to just say if uh, if you ever have an interest in plants or um, in general, just you know, just try to get involved locally, uh, volunteer, 
and make it's a great way to you can make connections. It's a great way to network and put yourself out there. And if you're a first time uh, veggie veggie gardening, it's it's such a great reward to really uh, grow your own. And let's say you grow cucumbers or corn or tomatoes, it's just it's just a great experience to really taste it. And then even you know, once you get better at it, you can start sharing it. And that's there's some real joy in that. It's exciting to add to that, right? We have uh, we have supply chain issues right now that you know growing your own food seems like a pretty responsible way to take care of number one, right? I know a lot of people tried when we had the pandemic was really hidden. I know a lot of people were like growing their trying their own vegetable garden. Yep, I suspect that didn't work out quite as well as everyone had mad had imagined that it would in their heads, right? I know we thought about it here too. It's like, well. We could just grow a vegetable garden, yeah. but we never got around to it for whatever reason. We never did, right? We also did not go to growing orchids, so like we didn't go that extreme. <laughs> Excellent. Where can people find you on social media, Gabe? I'm on uh, Instagram and TikTok as Antsy Plancy. It's just something I thought of. I feel like I'm always antsy, so I'm just like ants, plants, Antsy Plancy at Ryan, so that was cool. And then... Um, so yeah, TikTok, Instagram, Antsy Plancy, and then that's where I post most of my plant stuff, uh, native plants, or maybe I'll post uh, what I'm growing in my vegetable garden. And so I'm just trying to continue with that and keep people educated and, and knowing what's what plants are going out there, or, what, or like you said, invasive species, keep everybody in the know with that. Once again, our guest today has been Gabe Verdusco, a research associate at the University of California Cooperative Extension's Agriculture and Natural Resources Division. Gabe, thank you so much for coming on to Science Night. It was really a pleasure to meet you, pleasure to talk with you, and you're doing some really excellent work out there. I'm a social media um, fan myself, so I just I love watching this stuff. Um, keep it up. Um, we'd love to have you come back sometime. Yeah, thank you very much, and I uh, hope really everybody can take some advice out of today's science chat. <laughs> Thank you so much to Gabe Verdusco for coming on and talking to us. I can't wait to get out into the garden and send you pictures and annoy you by saying, what is this and why am I killing it? We have come to the end of another episode of the Science Night podcast, but we are going to be back before you know it. We got some special episodes coming up, so that's very exciting. But in the meantime... My name is James, and if you want to follow me and see me complain about the Philadelphia Phillies who are losing 8-1 to one right now, uh, you can go to my Twitter at James underscore Read3. Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or Instagram at Starshipin. And Jason, where can everybody find you? You can find my bad hot takes on Twitter at OregonJM. If you want to follow the podcast and find out when all these fun things are happening, our Twitter is at ScienceNight1. We got a website. Our home on the web is SciNight.com. That's S-C-I-N-I-G-H-T.com, where you can find our old episodes, links to all our social medias, and most importantly, our merch, because we got some new stuff coming out, really exciting things happening. We just released a new sticker pack with all of our logos and variants, so go check that out. And we have some special t-shirts coming in the future that I will not spoil here. You're going to have to wait to see what we have brewing in our minds. And we will be back in one week with a very special Earth Day episode featuring Dr. Deviani Singh. So you'll want to check us back in one week. And until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.
gosh. Okay, so now that they reworked the electrolyte, and now that I kind of know your name, um, 